Our reading today is from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. As I said uh, at the beginning of the service, this is a time of solemn celebration. Uh, many people believe that you can only celebrate happy things, and that's not true. The reason that you have refreshments at a wake, oftentimes, is that for, for a Christian wake, that is, the time of death is both sorrowful and yet in the midst of it, there's joy. What was Paul's uh, subtitle on his life? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The, the existence of joy in the midst of terrible circumstances is the evidence of, uh, of hope. That is what we talked about last week, hope for all of life, even in the midst of your own sin and uh, despair. The, the idea that one can have hope that God wishes to bring about good in one's life is uh, a, a touchstone of the Christian faith. It, it, Although never addressed succinctly in just one area, it is a thread which weaves itself throughout all of the scriptures. And in understanding that hope for the future, we also rightly need to recognize the darkness and sin that we're in. And so when we, when we enter into this season of Advent, um, it's right to remember where we've come from. Uh, you are not uh, the product of your own righteousness. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you have received grace from God. And it is part of God's commandments uh, that you remember that you were a slave in Egypt. I was reading last night, for some reason, I don't know why, I started reading in Deuteronomy. Just, you know, kind of one of those, we're done with things, let's go to bed, but before, you know, let's read a little scriptures. 
And one of the things I noticed in the in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, one of the commandments in not working, the reason for not working on the Sabbath, is not just that God rested, uh, although that is the primary reason. It's also that you would take the day to remember that you were a slave in Egypt. It actually says in the in that giving of those ten commandments in in Deuteronomy, the first uh, seven chapters. I forget which chapter it's in. Part of God's command is that you would remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And one of the evidences that that worked out itself in, or that idea worked out in uh, Hebrew worship was at the beginning of the Seder meal or the, the Passover meal, the, the person who was uh, celebrating or beginning that meal would begin the opening prayer now, remember, this is a person hundreds and hundreds of years, dozens of generations away from the actual Exodus event, but they say these words, when I was a slave in Egypt, the Lord brought us out. So, it's a, it is right as a Christian to remember wh- what you were saved from and, and the depth of your sin, uh, and that's why it's not inappropriate to have a season of of celebration that also recognizes our moral failings before a, a holy God. And this is what Isaiah is writing about in this context of exile. And so as we celebrated last year, uh, we we talked in Isaiah 2, 9, and 11. So also we're going to be spending some time in Isaiah this year uh, during Advent. And this, this chapter, Isaiah is uh, issuing a lamentation. He's, he's lamenting, he's mourning, uh, the, the condition of Israel, and is asking God to intervene. Uh, in this passage, we see the prophet here also becoming an intercessor in that uh, Isaiah begins this chapter with a cry to God, which is what we tried to reflect this morning in our song. Remember that song, Rend the Heavens? That, is, that uh, song is from this this passage, this first verse, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We're going to look at all of this uh, in the context of being in exile. That is, Israel has sinned against God and she's been punished, and Isaiah, the prophet of God, sent to give comfort to uh, Israel, the people of God, um, uh, he, he brings a message of acknowledging sin, and yet in the midst of that acknowledgement, a message of hope and a prayer uh, that God would intervene. And so, uh, we're going to look at these areas of that, Israel in exile, the miracles that God has done in the past, and Isaiah uh, is basically praying that they would come true again, the, the way that God looks at sin, and then God's faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. So, at the beginning, there is a there's a cry in Isaiah's heart um, that God would come down, that he would step down from heaven and he would make the wrong things right. He would put to order. And so, uh, as we um, as we go through this season of Advent, keep in mind that we are, by faith, entering into Isaiah, uh, to the experience of Israel in waiting for her Messiah. And so, likewise, Isaiah lives in a day where the, the people of God are in, in exile, I think very rightly that we should prepare ourselves as Christians for the recognition of Christianity in exile in America, both in a cultural context as well as political influence, but just in the manner in which we hold our hearts and and work for change and justice in our life. We should be ready to experience Christianity in exile. And what do I mean by that? 
Christianity losing its voice over the next two generations, and we should rightly dig proper, properly laid foundations to weather the coming storm. And so becoming acquainted with the language of exile, the language of lamentation, is a right thing to do for a Christian in America at this time. So partnering with that idea, let's look at how Isaiah enters into the heart of the Lord for his people. Um, as Christians, we believe God's working, of course, throughout all of uh, time. And uh, you, if you have spent any time talking with me about what I think about the end of the age or uh, the end of the world, uh, I'm actually very optimistic. Uh, God is, through his people, transforming the world. Jesus described the kingdom of heaven as a little bit of leaven, which was put in a sack of flour, and it's worked its way through. If you've never made bread, you may not understand what he's talking about. But leaven is another word for yeast, and I happened to uh, receive an early Christmas gift from my in-laws who visited us this Thanksgiving. And what uh, we did, we made, um, they gave me a, a pizza stone. So it's a big old stone. You set the oven to 500 degrees. It gets really hot. And then the stone holds all that heat in. Well, uh, that's really good for making bread. So I, I decided to make bread uh, this this week. And one of the things that I did, uh, it uh, I let the dough rise. And the reason dough rises is because yeast is an active, living uh biological uh, organism, and it eats the flour and the sugar, and it produces gas. And that gas that it produces as the byproduct of its uh, consuming the flour expands and poofs out the dough. It, it gets big. It gets puffy. And in the past, I had made pizza dough where it goes from about uh, the size of maybe a large grapefruit to the size of a basketball. Well, this recipe called for rising time of three hours, and it actually went from the size of a grapefruit to the size of a beach ball. This is what Jesus is using as the vision for the kingdom of heaven on the earth. It's a little bit of yeast, which works its way through the whole loaf and expands and gets larger and larger and fills the earth. So I'm actually really optimistic as a general idea for what Christianity has done throughout history, but each nation has its own story to play out. And so that's why I say we should be ready for Christianity to be in exile in America. And to that end, the church has rightly celebrated Advent in a twofold manner. The first is by faith entering into that waiting that Israel was going through, right? By faith entering into the, the language of the scripture and awaiting with eager anticipation the breaking in of light into the world for the first time. But Christians this side of the ascension of Christ, are also awaiting the time where Jesus Christ would, as it were, rend the heavens, split the sky, and come down from heaven to make the wrong things right. We await also in Advent not just his first coming, but we also eagerly anticipate his future second coming. And so there's a, that twofold element in our, in our season of Advent. Now, that may seem like, um, you know, two diametrically opposed ideas or two disjointed ideas. But actually, if you, if you rightly read these scriptures in that context and you listen to the, uh, the messages, the songs, uh, we are waiting for light to continually break into the world. And it's right to put the two together in that sort of celebration. So um, with that in mind, um, 
Advent's a time of preparation for the coming of Christ in his incarnation, which we, of course, celebrate at Christmas. But Advent's also a time of waiting and yearning for Christ's return from heaven. You and I, we are, as Jesus said, little lights in the world. But we eagerly anticipate the day where the true light of the world would return and fill all the world with light. That's what we're hoping for. The great hope as Christians is not dying and go to have, going to heaven. It's that Christ would return and that man would live with his creator on the earth as a true redeemed humanity for all eternity. That is what, the, uh, what Christianity teaches as we recited earlier in the creed. So, in that context of both waiting for his first coming, being in exile, and also waiting for Christ's final return to make the wrong things right on this earth, um, as a great culmination of his redemptive work throughout history, let's look at how Isaiah addresses this spiritual condition of, of the people of God uh, who have sinned and rightly been sent into exile. So Israel's lamenting the Israel uh, sorry Isaiah is lamenting Israel's condition and though God had in the past delivered her out of bondage she had forgotten this and she had entered into idolatry and sin and had become uh, enslaved again. Uh, at this time Israel is suffering under the weight of the Assyrians and uh Beforehand, before this, Israel was suffering under the, the mighty strong hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. So Pharaoh is oppressing the Israelites, and then God comes down and he, as it were, splits the sky. And if you remember rightly at Sinai, the mountains do shake at the presence of God, and then uh, there's fire and smoke all around the mountains. And so Isaiah is asking for this to happen again. He's saying the spiritual condition which Israel has found herself in is so bad that it's as if the exodus hasn't even happened. They've become so ignorant to what God has done in the past that they're unable to uh, muster any hope, and they are without hope, they're in exile, they're depressed, and they are uh, filled with sinning. Uh, it says here, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah is, in a sense, if you understand this, he is asking that the new covenant reality would come to pass. What is Ezekiel's uh, promise of the new covenant? I will write my law upon your heart, and I'll put my spirit within your spirit. You'll become new. I'll take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. You'll be a true human, not enslaved to your passions, your sins, your anger, your hatred, your unforgiveness. This is the new covenant desire. And we know that Isaiah is praying for this because Isaiah is saying the law which came down at Mount Sinai when God split the sky and came down and visited with Moses when the, the mountain was shaking remember verse one, and, and the fire and the smoke was all around the top of the mountain, we need a new law to be given. The law needs to come and reside in our hearts. And so Isaiah is entering into this uh, intercession. He's, he's praying on the behalf of the people of God that God would come down and do this again. Here we see the language of the Exodus, of course. And so Isaiah has God's reputation in mind in this. He is not just wishing for Israel to receive deliverance from her sin, but he also has regard for God's reputation. In that, we know rightly that God has chosen Israel to make her a special people, that through time and through history, God would glorify Israel over and over again, and she being faithful to Yahweh would be the diamond set amidst the black felt of all the nations of the earth, and that all the nations would see the light of God on Israel. They would see the favor of God on Israel. 
And this is God's, this is God's desire in choosing the people of Israel so that all the nations would be blessed. Remember, God is always trying to fulfill his promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this is God's intention through his work with Israel. And yet, even though that high call is given to her, she turns away from God and she sins. And Isaiah rightly has concern for God's reputation. Because if Israel is not a diamond, but rather a piece of trash, no one will wish to turn their eyes to her. And the Messiah cannot come and be the light shining in the midst of a dark world. No one will have any regard to who Yahweh is or, or what he's doing if Israel is unfaithful. That's why Isaiah is, is praying here that God would come down, and as it says in the last half of verse 2, so that your name would be known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. If they don't tremble, they'll never recognize the, king, uh, the kingship of Yahweh. That is, that God himself is the creator, and there is no ruler higher than him. Uh, verse, verses 3 and 4 um, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the heavens quaked at your presence. And then it says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor eye has seen a God beside you. What Isaiah is saying is that God's dealing with Israel in the midst of delivering her out uh, out of Egypt through the Exodus has never been done in the history of the world. All nations which exist in the, in the earth at this time, according to Isaiah, uh, exist because there was either a revolt of their own or that they naturally grew up after the sending out of the nations at Babel. So the Chinese, the, those uh, nations which show up in, in the Mesopotamian region, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and any other empire which shows up on the earth scene, Isaiah is saying that those didn't come about because their God helped them. They came about because of their own violence. He's saying that never has this happened. A a nation which was not a nation of people has never had their God come in and organize events such that they would gain their freedom. Uh, And this is God's uh, sign to all of the nations around Israel. When Rahab uh, uh, is encountering the spies, why does she give them coverage? Why does she hide the spies from uh, the people who are in Jericho who are looking for them? She says, because we have heard what your God did to the Egyptians, and we know that all the nations do what? They melt before you like wax. And so here, Isaiah is saying that, uh, that the people of God are melting before the nations. Everything is going wrong. The, the, the nations around Israel are supposed to tremble in fear so that they would eventually see Yahweh's grace. But here, the people of Israel, because of their sins, they've become like a chaff or, or uh, dry leaves that fall in the, uh, from a tree. Uh, Isaiah here is saying that this is a unique thing that God is doing. And yet, even though this special work has happened, Israel has become complacent. She has become uh, full of longing for her sins once again. Then Isaiah goes on at at this point to say that Israel was not even looking for his hand to move. And and you can see this if you you ever read through uh, the first parts of the Bible. Over and over again, God acts on behalf of Israel. And yet after the fact, Israel murmurs in in the desert and says, 
oh, God was angry with us. That's why he's brought us out to the desert so that we would die here. And yet it's God's grace alone uh, that is the reason that he acted. And so Isaiah confesses rightly that no eye has seen a God who works this way. No ear has heard of anything like this. And no one has... uh, no, no one has ever heard a story nor seen this come to pass in their own life. And also that the Israelites themselves were not even looking for this type of salvation. They just wanted a temporary relief from their sin or from their uh, suffering. Isaiah then goes on at this point and uh, begins to extol the virtues of, of God uh, as, as one in verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you are in your ways. Now that's true. God does have regard for the one who is righteous beforehand. But what's the problem? The problem is, according to Isaiah, that there isn't anybody who's like that. And that should speak to your heart as to what your heart is, uh, you, your heart's condition to God, even before you were a Christian or partly even today. There's no one in these verses who seeks for God. So he freely admits that Israel has absolutely no agency. That is, she didn't do anything to cause this, and she doesn't deserve any of the credit. All of the blessings that God has given to Israel are just grace. They are not, uh, they're not anything that she's earned. And uh, she wasn't even looking for God to move at that at that time. Unto the end that almost all of mankind has turned away from Yahweh, we read from the Old Testament, Yahweh, having regard for those who fear him, is, although that's a wonderful truth, it is unfortunately not relevant to mankind because all mankind has turned away from God. If man is to see God, if this great hope that of God's promise to Abraham, that through Abraham, everyone would be blessed. And we know that the vision of God is the supreme and chief uh, blessing that can happen to a, to a human. If that's to take place, then God has to come in a way that we can finally recognize it. And, and that is speaking to the hearkening call. We need God to come in the flesh. This is why we take time to celebrate Advent. It's to recognize that Jesus coming in a... In, in, in the manger, uh, it wasn't just some arbitrary thing. It was a vital necessity for the salvation of humanity. This isn't just for your own personal salvation, not going to hell and going to heaven rather, but this is so that all of creation, as we talked about last week, would not be subjected to futility or it wouldn't be pointless, right? If God does not send himself uh, in the flesh, if God doesn't come in such a way as no one can miss it, then all of humanity is futile and it's meaningless. And we should all become uh, nihilists and Fred, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche should be our, our favorite author. And, and, and man is absurd. We talked about that in the last few weeks, that without, without God coming and remedying, there is no point to life. And so we see in this chapter here, uh, Isaiah is not only praying for, for the people of, of God, but he's also praying for all of humanity in a sense. Uh, Isaiah confesses here that the sin of Israel is as the cause of God's anger and their exile is a righteous anger and exile. Moreover, he he asks at this point if they're going to be saved at all. That's how bleak sin is. He says at the the second half of verse 5, in our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? That question uh, begs to, to 
opened your eyes to the depth and darkness of sin. That is, you have been sinning a long time, and not only that, you've been in that way of life for your whole life, and salvation seems almost impossible. One of my great uh, uh, favorite authors, uh, one of the great authors, theologians of today, N.T. Wright, talks about this in the, uh, in the resurrection, that no one saw the resurrection coming. Not the disciples, not anyone that Jesus had plainly said, the Son of Man must suffer, for th- uh, suffer and be slain, and then after that three days uh, uh, rise again. No one eat, saw it coming. Likewise, Isaiah's picking up that same theme. He's saying, are we going to be saved out of this? I mean, Israel is totally guilty. To, she started worshiping other gods. She made altars. She broke God's tra- uh, laws. She's transgressed on every front. She's played the whore, as it, are, as it were. And, and Isaiah is rightfully asking a true question, is there any hope for salvation? This is how bleak the sin is that, that caused Israel to be pushed out of the promised land and for God to judge her. Isaiah rightly asks a, point, a poignant question, and yet it also is very prescient today. It, it, it matters to you. Shall we be saved? Is this even possible for God to both see our iniquity and also make a remedy? In verse 6, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isn't that right? Their iniquities are the reason why they're out in exile. Their iniquities have taken them away from the presence of God. Now, notice if you um, remember any of the language of the temple and the sacrifices that God had instituted for Israel so that she would be able to come before his presence— Isaiah here is is asking the question, is there any hope for salvation in the context of everyone in Israel has become so unclean that no one is able to go into the temple and offer atonement? Why is he concerned? Because this is the way that God had set up for salvation, for for them to be uh, prospered throughout their life so that the sins that they had committed would be passed over. So this is a very grave concern. Now, the reason I take all this time to explain the backstory is it doesn't really make any sense for Isaiah to say that we've become unclean, for you to just think that people are kind of sin, they've got character flaws. Isaiah is saying that everyone in Israel has become so unclean that the high priest himself cannot go into the temple to make atonement. Israel is cut off. This is how dark her sin is that everyone in the nation has been perverted by the worship of other gods. She has turned completely away from Yahweh. This isn't like living like a Christian on Sunday and then occasionally tripping up in the middle of the week. This is full-blown idolatry, apostasy, turning away from God. This is what Israel had uh, had com- these are the types of sins that Israel has committed. And to the end, that no one can go into the temple to atone, there is absolutely no hope. That's why Isaiah rightfully asks, shall we be saved? There's nothing that we can do. Isn't that a wonderful statement of the futility of attempting to come to God? 
many people get into these debates between this theology and that theology about how we can approach God or, or whatever, but they're done outside the context of the scriptures and the history that happened with God's people. Isaiah is rightfully concluding there is no hope for Israel. She cannot even atone for her sins. Moreover, she's not even in the land where she needs to make uh, atonement in the temple in Jerusalem. She's now over here in Assyria. There's absolutely no hope. Isaiah is very bold in that he says, no one even seeks for Yahweh. In verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. As Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we experience from time to time seasons where God stirs us in such a way as he encourages us to seek after him. Isaiah here is saying that's not happening anywhere in the people of God. Verse, uh, the next half of the verse, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Remember, the, the nations around Israel were supposed to melt, yet here in this situation, she is the one who's melting. This is a terrible situation, and it's extremely bleak. Uh, Isaiah is saying that no one loves God, nor even seeks for him. All of the priesthood who were supposed to keep themselves devoted to the worship of Yahweh, the service of his temple, uh, all of them have gone away. They've, they've left. And look how perverse this sin have, has become. The mountains which speak of the nations, are, those are the things that are supposed to melt. Remember, when, when God comes onto the mountain, it says the mountain became like wax, right? What happens with wax? It, it melts when there's a fire, which we'll uh, learn about a little bit in a liturgical manner here in a few minutes. But also, uh, God comes and brings his law, and what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to melt hearts of stone. And yet here, I, Isaiah is saying that the people of Israel are not under the proper fire that is the fire from heaven, that is God himself, an all-consuming fire, they are under the fire of hell, as it were, the terrible iniquities that are causing them to melt away, to, to be like, as it says in verse 6, fading like a, wee, a leaf. One of the things I think is, is really helpful in the season of Advent, and, and also Lent to some degree, is to consider the futility of living your life for anything other than the worship of God and the loving of Jesus Christ is that the scriptures over and over again say that all of our lives are like grass. Have you ever mowed the lawn? Mow the lawn and then two days later, three days later, the grass that once was wet and alive and vibrant is dry and ready to catch on fire. If you don't, if, if you were to take a, a lighter to it and it hadn't rained, it would catch on fire because it is, it is fleeting. Here Isaiah is saying the exact same thing. We are all fading like a leaf. Isn't that a wonderful image to see? The, the church did a very wise thing in the setting up of the calendar. Advent is at the time where days get darker and darker up till Christmas, and then light gets lighter and lighter. That is the number of hours uh, in the day. But also, it's proper to consider the futility of your life away from God. To live without Jesus Christ is to live a life cut off from the source of true life, joy, peace, and happiness. Jesus says of himself that I am the vine and you are just branches. I don't know if you've ever pruned a tree, but what happens when you cut off a branch? It dies. It, it withers. The, the moisture is gone. There's no, there's no way to get nutrients. The leaves become brittle and it's ready for the fire. <clears throat> 
And so in these seasons, he's rightfully considering not only the, the futility of life away from God, but also the sin which so easily uh, turns our lives to ash. David, when he's considering his iniquity before Yahweh, he says, food in my mouth has become like ash. All the joy of life is taken away from those who are in sin away from God. And this is what Isaiah is saying all of God's people have become like. He says, we all have become like one who is unclean. We all fade like a a leaf. There is no one who calls upon your name. Now, this is a bleak scenario, admittedly. This is the enemy at the gates, and worse than that, the enemy is us. This is, we have no salvation, and the the manner of salvation that God has taught us has been cut off from us. Other places in the prophets, they say that the, the new grain and the new wine has been cut off, therefore that Israel can't even worship. This is the same scenario here. Israel is unable to atone for her sins. And in a true way, we never are able to atone for our sins, are we? That's the reason we are eagerly anticipating God to rend the heavens and come down. And in fact, because Isaiah doesn't fully explain what he even wants God to do, other than re-give the law in a way that it would make uh, some sort of sense, in, in a very real way, Isaiah is appealing for God to come and make atonement. Now, I, I think you can see that now, but I would appeal to you that that's not easily apparent in this text. That's why studying your Bible as a believer is very good, because you can see those sorts of things when they're not rightly there, uh, or uh, not plainly there. And you can only do that by doing hard and deep work in the scriptures. And because of that type of work, the message of salvation that comes at Christmas can be savory and sweet. Uh, 50 Cent is a wonderful rapper. Uh, He's very good at what he does. One of my favorite lines from 50 Cent is that the sunny days wouldn't be fun or good or something without the rain. That's what Advent is to Christmas. Without rightfully seeing the darkness, the light of the world is pointless. It's just without seeing the darkness that you're in, Jesus coming as the light of the world is just one light on a giant LCD screen of pluralism and everybody's equal and all religions are the same and you can find God however you want. Without seeing the darkness of the spiritual condition of, an, of the unbelieving heart, the, the heart that is away from God, without seeing that darkness, the call and offer of free grace is pointless. It's, it's not special. It's not savory. It's not to be desired. It's to be detested. It's to be just one flavor in the midst of 31 at Baskin Robbins or one style of one style of life among many other styles. It's like some people have hobbies of fixing cars and working on trees and making sculptures and, and then other people are Christians. That's what it becomes without seeing the darkness of our sins. Christianity is not a side interest when you see what's going on here. That, that all have become like one who's unclean, that all fade like a, wee, a leaf, that all uh, avoid calling on Yahweh's name. That is what makes Christ, uh, Christmas sweet and savory. Though Isaiah has been lamenting, and this lamentation is full of sorrow and mourning, there at the same moment is a message of hope. I hope you felt it when we were singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, 
the cry of O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that, that couplet is that we cannot ransom ourselves. And the petition to God is that he would come and do it. And Isaiah rightfully, as an intercessor, does not only sit in despair, and this is important to work out as a new believer, a new Christian, that God is not angry forever. He, in his wrath, remembers mercy. And Isaiah lays hold of this and reminds Yahweh about this himself. He says in verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are like the clay, and you are the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Isaiah's not blaming Yahweh for the iniquity of Israel. He's rather saying that Israel has no backbone. She is quick to turn away from him to other gods, right? She's like clay that hasn't been fired in an oven. It's very squishy. I don't know if you've ever experienced clay before it's been made into a pot or made into a dish, but clay is very, it's malleable, right? You can move it, you can shape it, you can throw it at something. It'll, it'll be, it's like Play-Doh that's extra wet. Um, and, and here, Isaiah is saying that we are like clay and you are the potter's wheel. Isaiah rightfully takes hold of the, glimmer, uh, the tiny glimmer of hope the tiny light at the end of the tunnel of this exile experience for the people of God. He takes hold of that and says, although we have become like leaves, we also are like clay. He's saying that although we're like leaves in this analogy over here, we are like clay and we are malleable in the hand of God and we are the work of his hand. He then says in verse nine, uh, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, for we are all your people. Isn't that a wonderful message of hope contrasted with all of us have gone astray, all of us have become unclean, all of us have stopped seeking after Yahweh, but behold, we're still like clay in your hand, and we are all your people. This is a wonderful message of hope. Um, if someone wants to go grab the kids or let them know to come up. Whereas Adam, in the midst of his sin, hides before God, Yahweh's prophets call God to actually take a look at what's going on. In Habakkuk chapter 1, it says that God cannot even look upon iniquity, but behold, he has regard for his people. The same thing's happening. Isaiah here is joining his voice with the other prophets, and he, rather than excusing his sin and the nation's sin, he, he says, God, hey, over here, come look at this spot where we've sinned. The reason he does so, the reason he's confident to do so, is because he knows that God is merciful, that he is not angry forever. God has every right to renounce Israel and leave her in bondage. As we said earlier, she had played the harlot completely. And so God, in his rights, can dismiss her. She has broken the covenant. The covenant is broken, therefore it is ended. And therefore, he can leave her in exile, never to redeem her, to let her just become uh, dispersed among the nations. He doesn't have to do anything in terms of rights. But this is where the difference between an angry God or a tyrannical God uh, comes out versus Yahweh himself. Though Yahweh is angry rightly with the people of Israel, he does not leave her up. In the midst of her iniquity, Yahweh is faithful to his people. He will come 
rightly so, and split the heavens and come down in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we interpret Isaiah in, the framework that God is coming down to split the sky and to come and be in the midst of his people. And this is what we eagerly wait for. Remember when Jesus is being baptized, what happens? It says that the that there's uh, some said that it thundered, but God at that point splits the sky and declares from heaven once again, behold, this is my beloved son. That is precious to you if you consider that for 400 years, no one had received a word from God. And yet once Christ is on the scene, once Christ has come in the flesh to take our sin on, to take our humanity and our weakness on, when he submits to God's command to be baptized by John the Baptist, 400 years of spiritual silence is broken, and God again splits the sky and speaks. So that's why Christmas is, is precious. So um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. We do ask, Lord, that you would burn away everything in our hearts that is against you, that, that holds itself in rebellion towards your mercy. Lord, we ask that you would purify us, that we would not be like Israel, that we would not seek after other gods or pleasures or, or things in this life or, or the, the praise of man, but Lord, that we would worship you alone. And also, Lord, we ask that in this season, you would convince us of the rightness of being joyful in the midst of of looking at our sin and, and being sorrowful, for we know that you have mercy. Lord, we ask that you would help us prepare for your, uh, for your arrival as we re-celebrate Christmas. Lord, help us to uh, rightly consider the end of our days, that we would understand even after being redeemed, our days are numbered, and we are like the leaf that fades and the grass which withers. God, give to us a spirit of mercy, spirit of grace and supplication, that we would properly seek you in this season. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So uh, with that in mind, um, we're going we're gonna to pray. There's going to be a prayer, um, and then there will be a lighting of a candle and a reading, and think about uh, light growing throughout the season. So, yeah. Join with me in prayer. Creator of the world, you are the potter, we are the clay, and you form us in your image. Shape our spirits by Christ's transforming power, that as one people we may live out your compassion and justice, whole and sound in the realm of your peace. Amen. Psalm 80 verses 1 through 7 and 17 through 19. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O oh, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of con contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O oh God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. <laughs> 